0: Well, amen, if you would uh, take a seat, and uh, as you take your seats, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I just want to say how is it to all of you. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name's Travis. If you don't know me, I'm the teaching pastor here at the church. We're really humbled that you take your, uh, your Sunday evening, Friday evening, um, for this special gathering as we reflect on and think about what happened on Good Friday. I want to welcome the Keiki as well, Keiki in the house. Uh, it's going to be a little bit restless in here, that's okay. Try to parent parents, do the best you can, but we get it. They make noise, things happen, and we get that. Uh, so, but we don't always do this, but we do want our Keiki to join us every once in a while for an Ahana-style worship, so it's good to have you guys with us for this Good Friday. And as you're making your way to Romans 3, what makes Good Friday so good? Like, seriously, what makes Good Friday good when uh, it's about the most tragic, ugly, bloody death any individual human would ever experience from the beginning of creation to the end of creation as we presently know it? What makes Good Friday so significant, so good, is not that Jesus deserved what he did, but that Jesus went through what he did, because out of that ugliness, the beauty of the gospel is born. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he likens the darkness to the kingdom of darkness, and that darkness is like those who are part of unbelief, and they don't believe in Jesus, and the transfer from darkness to light is is that shift from darkness to light. That is to say, when we see the gospel, darkness is there and then light becomes present. That's the the imagery. That's how Paul animates us coming from darkness to light. And that's never more true than when we think about Good Friday, that out of the darkest event, the greatest, brightest news that we could ever declare, ever think about, ever devote ourselves to is made a reality. And when it comes to Jesus' death on a cross, we believe that the gospel is an event. That's what we as Christians believe, that the gospel is an event. The gospel isn't just an idea. The gospel isn't a style of music, though it is. Some of it's good, some of it not. But it's more than that. The gospel isn't a myth. The gospel isn't the sinner's prayer. The gospel is an event mixed with tragedy and joy, sorrow and suffering, darkness leading to light, because the gospel is an event that took place on a Friday of which we reflect on tonight, but the gospel is not just an event, the gospel is a person, the gospel is Jesus. So the gospel is that the death of Jesus, he saves us from our sin, he saved us from death, he saved us from hell, and through the cross, he then transfers us from the kingdom of darkness out of the kingdom of light. And that is why we reflect, we have this gathering, and we call tonight and this day Good Friday. And we often see Good Friday from our perspective, and we should. It's a good perspective, right, to see the good news to reflect on Christ's sacrifice on Good Friday. We see Good Friday so often from our point of view. We are really good. I don't know if you know this, but we as humans are really good at making it all about us, right? We can can take something that's not totally about us and make it completely entirely about us. And so it's good every once in a while to have a refresher and to be pulled out of what is not normative uh, to to look at a, a different perspective because there are more points of view than just ours. You know this. There's always more points of view than ours. My wife was uh, climbing a tall ladder with an extended pole to pick uh, an avocado out of the top of this avocado tree. She likes her avocados, and so uh, the kids are around, and she's on the higher end of this ladder getting ready to pick an avocado. And so Alistair, from his perspective saw what was going down and uh, with compassion, he's six, mind you, uh, with compassion said, um, mom, if you die, can I get your iPhone? (laughs) Uh, True story. And um, he saw life from his perspective. Mom may die and I hope I get the iPhone out of this deal, right? And so uh, I'm not saying it's wrong to see things from our perspective. That's not what I'm saying. But it is wrong to only selfishly see the cross from our perspective. It's crazy that we could take something as beautiful as the cross and turn it about us. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's good to think about the cross. But, but I want us to do something different. We should be willing to see things from a different perspective if we're going to understand the richness and the fullness of what happened when Jesus bled his his veins out and hung on that tree for our sin on that bloody Friday. Because we aren't the only ones who have a perspective. You know, even the angels, they have a perspective of the cross. The angels' perspective of the cross is one with curiosity. The angels' gaze at what happened on Good Friday with mystery and with wonder for they themselves are not fallen creatures and they have not been made in the image of God like you and me we've been made in the image of God and so they look at with wonder and with curiosity what would it be like to be an adopted child of God they haven't experienced that they, they never will they look with amazement Satan also has a pretty unique of the cross right he's got a unique perspective of the cross Um, he has his head under the, the heel of Jesus right now, waiting to fully be crushed at the final day of judgment. He's pinned down, not fully, but he is on his back. Sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting as a result. Satan's perspective. So instead of looking at the cross from our perspective, I want us to look at the cross this evening from God's perspective. How does God view what happened on Good Friday? What does God have to reveal to us in the scriptures about the cross? And what does then Jesus' bloody death mean to God? And I had you turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to verse 26 is where we are going to be reading through. If you have your Bibles, go there. I want you to see what the word of God has to say about this. Not me. Not what you think Easter is about, what God has declared what Easter is about. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because He, in divine forbearance, had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness At the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, would you give us eyes to see, hearts to believe, and ears to hear from your perspective what happened on Good Friday. And that we would be in awe of what you're doing in our lives, for your word declares that even at this present time, your righteousness is being shown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what does this mean to God then? Well, in Romans 3, how does God view the cross? I I have three three thoughts on this. The cross shows that God views us all as sinners. The cross shows us uh, the righteousness of God. And then the cross shows us God's grace. The cross shows us God's grace. Now, my heart this evening is not to to dive into depth in all of these details. I wish we could, but we have Keiki with us, and it's awesome. We're glad to have you guys here. But uh, really, what I want to do for the remainder of this time in the Word is just to stir your affection and my affection for what happened on Good Friday. Verse 21 says, interestingly, this is Paul, kids, who wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who says, now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. When Paul says that, just so you know, he's dropping a bombshell to Jews who were in Rome hearing this message. Like their, their whole understanding of the law is, is there and it's intact more than ours is. But when Paul mentions this and that it's going to be in Jesus, he's dropping a complete bombshell. Everything that they thought they knew is being turned on its head with Jesus. For he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. So what is he saying there? In former past times, the law was an instrument and a tool to show you God's way and for you to measure your righteousness. But now, because Jesus has come, righteousness is not in the law. In other words, you cannot earn your way to God by being religious, by being moral, by doing the law of God, by simply obeying the commandments. In fact, he says the righteousness of God is not manifest, does not make itself known in the law anymore. But it's in Jesus. And so, do you see what's happening here? Paul is saying, the law has power to show your imperfections, but the law does not have power to save you. The law will show you your imperfections, but it does not have the power to save you. You know this to be true. Have you ever lied? Show of hands. Have you ever lied? Anyone ever lied in here? Okay. Look around. Everyone, say, everyone put their hand on really quick. Because uh, they're like, how quickly can I take down my hand? Because, yeah. Okay, kids, you saw all the hands up? Two, right? You saw everyone's hands up, right? We, we, and if you didn't raise your hand, you just proved that you're a liar. So that's awesome. <laughs> <clears throat> what does the law do? What is the law doing there? God says, in his law, we, we should not be liars. We should not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Great. You, you've sinned. And if you've sinned, what the law is doing, it's as a schoolmaster, and the law is showing you your imperfections. But the law in and of itself, don't lie, is not enough to save you, is it? So So... After this evening, just don't lie ever again. Go have fun with that, right? We're we're chuckling because we know the law itself does not have the power to do that. So Paul continues on in verse 23, for all have sinned, or he says, For there is no distinction then. When it comes to law, when it comes to what he's about to say. All have sinned, verse 23, and fallen short of the glory of God. So so the case he's making first here is, the distinction is this. You cannot earn your salvation through anything good you do. You can try to check off every box of God's Ten Commandments. You can perfectly obey your boss. You can perfectly obey your parents. You can pay your taxes. You can mow your neighbor's lawn. You can do a bunch of really things... really good things. I'm loving God in the process, but even then, that's not enough to save you. But God views our attempts, because of the cross, to be righteous on our own as what? Sinners falling short of the glory of God. Sinners falling short of the glory of God. Before Good Friday, before the event of the cross, God looks at all of us as sinners. Like, how's that for an emotional booster? How's that for your self esteem, right? But you're like, no, not me. Yeah, you. All have sinned. There's no exception. Your kid in here, your sin, your parents know that. Your brothers and sisters, oh, they know that. Those who are older, we sin. We know we've sinned. You all just raised your hand and proved the point. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we've lied. And that's just one thing. Do we want to go through the Ten Commandments? I don't think so right now. We don't have time, so we won't. But the point is that is how God views us. And maybe the perspective you have of yourself is not the perspective God has of you. Maybe you're thinking, "Um, I'm not that bad though. And what are we doing? We are in some way using religion or using the law to justify how good we are. I mean, I do good things, I help people, or I'm not that bad, right? One that I've often used is, is, uh, at least I'm not as bad as this person, right? And what are we doing when we say we're not that bad? What are we doing when we're saying I'm a good person, I've helped a lot of people, or I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right, kids, you know that? Like, I'm not as bad as my brother or sister, they're worse than me, you've done it. Spouses do this all the time. Roommates do it. Employees do it. When we do that, what we're doing is we're taking our perspective of goodness and measuring it up against others and that is not how God views our goodness. That no matter how much I try to measure up, that is my attempt through the law and it will only cause me to fall short. Hear me right now, you guys. Sin is not just doing something bad. It is, but sin is failing to do all the right that we should do and satisfy God's holy, righteous demand. All have sinned, and the result of that sin is we've fallen short of the glory of God. So maybe you haven't done a bunch of bad stuff, but have you done every good thing that God has called you to do? No? Okay, fallen short of the glory of God. We're still sinners. Now, I may try to measure up and view my own righteousness and goodness up against the worst person I know. But that's not how God measures our holiness and righteousness. God's standard of holiness is not the worst sinner we know. God's standard of holiness is not us on our best day. We wake up, the bluebird is on our shoulder. We pick up the Bible. We just randomly crack it open, and our devos go good. Um, we hit all green lights. on the Our best day. We share our faith, like, with five people, right? You don't get upset when someone cuts you off. You actually pray for them and bless them. It's your best day. Okay, the, the worst sinner you know is not your standard for holiness, and your best day is not your standard for holiness. God himself is the standard of holiness. And that is what is so crushing about the holiness of God. A lot of us say we throw around God is good. All the time he's good. God is good. That's terrifying. The goodness of God just kind of throwing that around like oh whatever like yeah God is good. Uh, He is good. But Leviticus 11.45 says, so you must be holy, God says, because I am holy. How does does it make you feel? Okay, if you're going to not fall short of my glory, if you're not going to be a sinner, then what you need to do is just be holy as I am holy. Like, how how does it make you feel right now? Does it crush you a little bit? Like, I should be holy as God. God, you're you're requiring me to be as holy as you are. Uh Uh-huh. It's impossible. God, I can't do that. If you feel that way, you're getting it. You're getting it. You would be agreeing with Paul then in Romans three twenty three when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the point. We can't do it. And that's why he says there's no exception. There's no distinction. God looks at you and me, and he sees the mess that we are, and he sees that we've miserably fallen short of his glory. Listen, just to make you feel even better, you are a worse sinner. I am a worse sinner than we ever realize. We are worse sinners than we can comprehend. And God views us as sinners is so absolute. The only way for our sin is the cross. The only way is the cross. God's like, you're so messed up. Even Jesus prayed, Father, if, if there's another way in the garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Was there another way? There wasn't. So the cross shows us that God views us as sinners. The cross shows us God's righteousness. Look at verse 25. Look at the righteousness of God. God shows us his righteousness, his glorious righteousness in the cross, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So why did Jesus die on the cross? For my sin. Yes, he did. What was the main reason? To display his glorious righteousness. That's God's perspective. To display his righteousness and the ugliness of the cross because in divine forbearance he passed over former sins. You guys know God can't ignore sin? He can't. He cannot pretend if we've never done anything wrong. I'm just going to pretend like I never saw that. God can't say, I never saw you steal that cookie. God can't say, I never saw you steal that money from work. God can't say, I never saw you. He, he cannot just simply ignore sin. In fact, if God could ignore sin, he would fail to be just and he would not be righteous or good. Isaiah 5, verse 16 says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. The righteousness of God is so supreme to his own nature and his character, and in the cross, the holy righteousness of God is on display. So if we're taking the first point, God views us as sinners, and now the second point, the cross is God's display of his righteousness. Let's put these together now. If God is good and we are not, what happens to us? What does a righteous God do with sinners who fall short of the glory of God? No sin. No sin goes unpunished. Guys, every sin is paid for. The cross of Jesus Christ either shields us from the wrath of God or becomes the very reason we are condemned sinners in hell. If Jesus does not take your place for your sin, if he does not take my place for my sin, then we will have to spend all eternity in hell paying for that sin under the wrath of God. You're like, man, take it easy. The kids are here. I love your kids. I love my kids. We all need to hear this. The forgiveness of our sin doesn't mean Jesus just blissfully ignores us. God views the cross as the most costly and only payment to save sinners who have fallen short of his holy, righteous demand, his glory. In fact, verse 25 of Romans 3, notice this phrase that's used here. It says, this was to show his righteousness, but before he goes there in verse, the beginning of verse 25, for whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood propitiation What does that word mean propitiation because I know you have it probably memorized Propitiation so so our sin is not forgiven because Jesus was nailed to a tree and died only Did you know that your sin is not forgiven simply Leo even alluded to this earlier in the congregational call that that it's not enough for Jesus just to bleed and die our sin is forgiven because Jesus fully satisfied the righteous requirements for us. And our sin is forgiven because God was satisfied by Jesus' blood payment for our sin. That's propitiation. Where the only worthy payment would be the blood of his own son. And the only righteous demand that would be satisfied by this payment would come from Jesus. And so he accomplishes both in the cross. Do you guys see? Here's, Here's the point. All that God does is right. Everything that God does is just. God's standard of holiness is himself and Jesus, God sends Jesus as the only way we can be saved from our sins because Jesus would be the only acceptable sacrifice. Not just because he died, but he died to satisfy God's anger and wrath and Jesus satisfies all of God's demand on our behalf. The cross shows us God's view of all of us, that we are sinners. The cross reveals that God's righteousness is fully on display. And lastly, going longer than I thought, I'm sorry, the cross is the only way he can give us grace. It's the only way. In the Old Testament, everything was building up towards this moment and everything we live now 2,000 years after the cross is looking back at this moment. The only way you could ever receive grace is if Jesus is our substitute, if he is our propitiation. Verse 24, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 26, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We fully deserve God's punishment for our sin. But for those who have faith in Jesus, we have been what? What does Paul say there in the end? Justified by the Justifier. Martin Luther says, he refers to as the great exchange that took place. We're on the cross. Jesus takes your sin, and in exchange, He gives you His righteousness. So you stand before God. What? Guilty? Oh, forgiven. Condemned? No. Free. Hated? No. Loved. Why Good Friday is good? We are justified by God's gracious gift. This is all a gift to you and me. God wasn't obligated to do this to you and me. He didn't have to do it. In fact, that's what verse 24 says. We are justified by His grace as a gift. It is in the cross God saves us. It is through the cross God gives us grace. It is because of the cross we have faith in what Jesus has done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the only way we're saved Then It is by His grace. You have been saved by His grace. The cross shows that you're the object of His love. In fact, He loved you so much that God says, I'm going to send you my only Son, so that if you believe in Him, you would not perish, but have everlasting Life, this is grace. And grace, notice it is defined as a gift, right? So what does that mean? If grace is a gift, it takes away any idea that we can contribute to earn our own salvation. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's given to you. This strips us of any moral religious or human efforts you and I can do to go back, back to verse 21, to try to find righteousness in the law. No, it's in Jesus and his righteousness. That's why we sing in that song, Rock of Ages, nothing in our hands we bring but what? Simply to the cross we cling. The cross empties you of yourself and fills you with God's love and God's righteousness. Good Friday is a reminder to view the cross and to view ourselves as God sees us. The cross is God's gift to sinners who know that they've sinned and fallen short, who see the righteousness of God on display, and who repent and who believe in what God has done for us. Because you've earned it? No. Because he did it. Because he was gracious. I pray that you would have your affections stirred for the simplicity, the richness, and the beauty of the gospel. Kids, you did awesome. You did awesome. You hung in there. Let's pray. Father God, you are so gracious to us, God. You treat us not as our sins deserve. But you give us grace upon grace. And may we be a people who can articulate. May we be a people who can think about. May we be a people who love richly what happened on Good Friday. And Lord Jesus, if there are those in here who do not know you, who have yet to repent of their sin, Lord, we pray that they would confess their sin. That you would see what Jesus has done for you and that you would simply believe that he has made it possible by his grace and his grace alone. So Lord, be with us as we continue now in worship and song and in a little while to continue to worship you and reflect as we Partake of communion. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.